0: Welcome to Steel Stories by US Steel. In this podcast, we explore the wealth of knowledge from leading industry experts to
1: help you navigate the infinitely developing renewable world of steel. Well, welcome to Steel Stories. I'm David Kirkpatrick, and on today's episode, we're talking to Annie Heaton, CEO of Responsible Steel. We'll hear a lot more about that in a minute. Steel is used in every facet of our lives, and the steel industry is also one of the largest global CO2 emitters in the world, so achieving net zero carbon emissions by 2050 will be nothing short of a challenge. As an industry, we can be more successful in driving climate change solutions when we bring voices to the table across the supply chain, including producers, suppliers, and NGOs like universities and civil society organizations to establish global standards for steel. Steel Stories welcomes Responsible Steel, a multi-stakeholder organization founded to bring together business, civil society, and downstream users to provide a global standard and certification initiative for steel. We'll talk about its mission to achieve net zero carbon emissions for the steel sector, carbon emission regulations impacting the steel supply chain, and the growing investor and public interest in sustainability. So welcome, Annie. It's so good to have you here with us
0: today. Thank you for having me.
1: Maybe it would be good for you to start by just giving us a little more fulsome definition of responsible steel and and its purpose.
0: Happy to. So responsible steel was established with one goal in mind, which was really to maximize steel's contribution to a sustainable society. How do we do that? We do that through an international standard that we've developed over many years with our our members. We do that through a certification scheme, which is a third party independent assurance scheme, so that users of steel from certified sites can be confident that what they're using has been through a rigorous process. One of the things we pride ourselves on is having a multi-stakeholder membership community, and that's what has enabled us to develop a standard which we can truly call global and has a balance of interests in its design. So it's not designed by steelmakers. It's not designed by NGOs. It's designed by a mix of the two. And I think that makes for a credible standard and one that's both plausible, implementable, and stands up to scrutiny in terms of sustainability. It's really an impressive
1: effort. And I think our listeners will really find it intriguing to learn all the things you're doing and the extremely methodical and re- responsible, shall we say, way you're doing it. So I really love that all the things you just said will drill down into a number of aspects of that in the next few minutes. I also think it's interesting you are a, a longtime expert in sort of NGO responsibility. You've been in the, you've been in the wind industry, you've worked on labor issues, you've worked for a steelmaker on the responsibility and ESG side at Arcelor Middle, and then you've been in this job for a little under a year. So tell me why it attracted you to come to this particular job.
0: Well, instinct is, is the real answer to that, David. I've been working, as you say, in sustainability for all my career. I've worked with NGOs, I've worked in the wind industry, as you say, and I've worked in the steel industry. And I think by far and away, the steel industry is the most complex industry I've ever worked on in terms of ESG. There's so much to, to do, there's so much to learn, you know, steel is such a fundamental material to our world, you know, what better challenge than to to try and drive sustainability across the industry. And I worked for a leading steelmaker for nine years. And I was involved, to some extent, in the early days of responsible steel and the evolution of the standard, particularly on the carbon side. And what I saw was a very pragmatic effort to bring together the industry globally into something very, a very challenging idea, having a a global standard, because what you could see across the world was a number of standards emerging in different jurisdictions. There's nothing more complicated than a world full of different standards, because then you have to try and harmonize them all. So Responsible Steel was trying to kind of nip this in the bud and create something from the outset. And as it was doing that, the Paris Agreement was signed, the UN Sustainable Development Goals were agreed. And suddenly the corporate world became much more involved and interested in ESG. The investor world became much more interested in ESG. And so the value chain and the financing of heavy industry became more in the spotlight with regard to, to sustainability. And Responsible Steel seemed to be playing a potentially pivotal role. Now it was, it, you know, Responsible Steel is a, a relatively young organization. We're seven years in now. And we just released the standard that we set out to create back in 2015 when we were established last year. So we we are now on the cusp of a transformation. And I would say the period of the next three to five years is one of building momentum and then real industry-wide transformation. And that is truly exciting to me because what I'm driven by is is impact, I'm driven by the improvements that we can make on the ground for the communities working in and around steel plants and for the customers of steel that ultimately use the product. And we wanna create an industry that we can look back and say, we didn't used to be a sustainable industry, but we really are now playing a critical role in a circular sustainable economy, which is low carbon and is fit for the future. Responsible Steel's role in that will be pivotal, I have no doubt.
1: It's amazing and impressive that The steel industry had already realized it needed to take this kind of a direction even before the Paris Accords, etc. But obviously the pressure has been building. But let's, and we'll get to sort of the atmosphere and the socio-cultural context in a minute, but let's talk a little bit about steel and why this is so important for the world, for steel as an industry, to change in effect. Because steel contributes an awful lot of CO2 emissions, at the same time that it is indispensable to almost everything we do, including the sustainability climate transition. So talk a little bit about how you think of the particular challenges facing steel as an industry.
0: So as you say, steel is a fundamental material in our in our world, and it's almost overlooked in that sense. It's the sort of invisible material in so much of, of what we see around us. So it has taken time for the industry to, I think, really engage in a commercial level on the sustainability front. So whilst the fast moving consumer goods industry, the pharmaceutical industry, many other industries have had consumers and customers that are, have engaged in this for, for decades. Steel in, in the steel industry, this has come relatively late in the day. So for many steel companies across the world, this is not an old topic. Uh, it's something that they're working out how to integrate into their business. And what have you got to do if you want to integrate sustainability into your business? You, you, you've got to create management systems, you know, health, safety, quality, environmental management systems, all of that good stuff, but you've got to find a value for it. And there are multiple different values for sustainability. The employee engagement from sustainability is enormous. And I think today, if you're trying to attract graduates and particularly science graduates who may well be in, in short supply, they wanna work for a, an industry, a company that is committed to improving and to its role in a sustainable society. There's a clear value there. And what we've seen with responsible SEAL certification, that process is that the employees love it. They feel very, very proud when they get that. And absolutely they should do because it's a very, very arduous you know, exacting process so it's a, it's a great achievement and it shows that there's a commitment to the future. It's not about what you just did last year, it's about both that and what you're going to do next year and the year after that and the year after that. So there's the employee element, then there's the the finance element. actually, what do your investors, what do your shareholders want and and what do your creditors want? So there's a, a risk management element to sustainability, just as we we've known for many years on safety. A, you know, A site that's run well old safety is going to be a good, productive, efficiently run site. So, too, on sustainability, we're seeing that, too. Then there's the, the customer side. You've got to find customer value out of it. And as I say, I think customers of steel have come relatively late in the day to this, but we're now seeing this emerge in Europe, throughout the US, increasingly in other parts of the world, too. And so once that value is articulated well, then the dynamics can really start to play and then you start to see your commercial director working with your human resources director, working with your sustainability director, working with your investor relations director. And and the pieces of the jigsaw sort of fit together and you start to see the strategic value of sustainability. You know, those are both challenges and opportunities for for every steelmaker. Interesting that even though we're sort of honing in
1: on the way that we can Help the steel industry respond to the climate crisis. There are other elements to the Responsible Steel Initiative which are very, very important, including how you work with employees. Just talk a little bit about, just so we, our listeners will understand it, the non-sort of CO two climate part of Responsible Steel's mission.
0: So, if we, I mean, if we think about climate change, if we were to decarbonize the world tomorrow, we would still not have solved the sustainability challenge. Because our world, as we all know, is made up of ecosystems. And those ecosystems are very complex dependencies between the air we breathe, the water we use, the plants that grow. And so there's all these interconnections. And of course, people are intricately interconnected with those ecosystems. So, This is why they all start to interconnect, and you can see this very clearly in the UN Sustainable Development Goals. There are 17 of them. In the Responsible Steel Standard, we have 13 principles, and they cover environmental issues such as biodiversity, air emissions, water, and climate, obviously. We have social issues, which cover labour, human rights, and stakeholder engagement, and we have governance issues, which is really how the site is run and how the site's management relates to, to its corporate ownership and the commitments that the corporate owner makes. So those are the three elements, E, S and G, and that we, so they cover cut across 13 principles. And for responsible SEAL certification, you have to achieve compliance with all of those principles. There are in total over 500 requirements. Many of them are on climate and carbon, but there's many more besides. And what I haven't mentioned is that when a tonne of steel is made, it's made from a whole range of materials, predominantly iron ore, maybe scrap, a source of energy, which may be natural gas, maybe coal, in the future, we hope increasingly renewable energy and and, and green hydrogen, but there are many other materials aside, and we need to ensure that all those materials are sourced responsibly. They come from well-run mines, that are also certified against sustainability standards. And so that that certification runs through the value chain. That's the whole gambit. And it's it's quite a tall challenge as you can hear.
1: I love the diversity of your membership and in effect the diversity of your impact because there is an ecosystem evolution that seems to be happening across society, which is considerably mutually reinforcing set of energies where the more any party in the ecosystem is committed to making some of these changes, it almost by necessity pulls along other players, whether they were initially intending to be pulled along or not. Like, in, But I do think maybe the mining industry, some players there have already recognized they have to change the way they do their work also. Another thing I love about responsible steel is when we can talk a little more in detail about the standard perhaps. Because you referred to it, and I know that was something that took a long time. But the fact that when you agree to anything, you have two different constituencies that have to more or less agree. So, quickly talk about how that works.
0: Sure. So, right from the outset, Responsible Steel was set up with two houses the business house and the civil society house. And those houses need to be in balance in any decision that's made by the members. That's on the standard. So, we've had two votes in our six, seven years of existence. One was on the vote for the original standard, which we we call the kind of core standard. And the second was last year when we added elements to the standard on greenhouse gas emissions, carbon emissions, and on responsible sourcing, which is all those input materials I just talked about. And those are really very exacting requirements. We've had those two votes. And each voting, we need to have more than 50% support in each of those two houses I mentioned. And we were so delighted last year when we... We've been through three years of really rigorous and lengthy engagement to get to our additional requirements on climate and responsible sourcing. We put it out to the vote, membership vote, and we had over 90% support from both houses, it, quite an incredible level of support. So it, didn't, it never came back down to the wire. We were never sort of in the realms of 51% or so. I think it's very good for people to understand that there's an enormous support from both civil society and from business for the responsible steel standard.
1: And the civil society component includes unions as well, which is quite interesting. You know, one of the things I'm sure many non-steel industry listeners have in their mind is an assumption that steel makers don't really want to improve. It's too expensive. They think of them as old industry, etc. But there have been some companies that have really been eager to make some of these changes, as I understand it. And there is a wide range in the industry of participation, and by no means are all steel makers in the world part of this initiative, especially in the United States. I believe US Steel is the only steel maker in responsible steel. But talk a little bit about the range of thinking among the steel companies for what they're up to here.
0: So, you know, and I can draw on my own experience in the industry I mentioned earlier on this, because every steel company, the leadership is different, but it does come down to the leadership as to what route that steel company takes. And the leadership may well want to really take a stand on sustainability. And we're, we're seeing this in every industry that there are a small number of companies that want to really take a stand, show the leadership because they know that that is good for all of those stakeholder groups I mentioned earlier. It's great for their employees, it's great for their customers, great for their investors. Those are the ones that have joined Responsible Steel in the first instance. What we're now seeing is not just the leaders, but we're seeing the kind of the, the fast followers, if you like joining Responsible Steel, so that we've got the sort of second wave of companies joining us now. And they are seeing that in their region, they they can also be leaders. We've got an increasing number of Indian steel companies, Korean steel companies, So we're expanding globally. Those companies are either seeing the commercial pressures, the recruitment pressures, the investor pressures, or they can see it coming down the road. And the real value in something like responsible steel certification is actually getting there before that pressure is is on you and getting one step ahead, understanding how it works and capitalizing on that. The tempo may vary, the particular motivations may vary in different markets, but the real leadership across all of these companies is the desire to lead globally and the understanding that actually whilst it might be easier to have a a system that just works for your region, your jurisdiction, your type of steel company, actually, we need a standard that works for the whole industry across the world, because climate is a global phenomenon. You can't solve climate just by doing something good locally. You've got to decarbonize that entire system. That requires an international standard to to think about those steel makers in developing countries, as well as developed countries. And that's the strength of the standard, that we're considering it from every every angle. Is
1: the membership growing among steelmakers? How ambitious is your goal? Do you want to get every
0: steelmaker in there eventually? Is that necessary or does that matter? Absolutely. The goal is is really to roll out across the industry globally. What we've seen in in recent years is an increase in our membership. We've now got 14% of the steel industry in membership. When you consider 50% of the industry is in China, You can more or less double that to think of the the representation outside of China. And it's growing by the day. We've just had JSW in India join. We've got others in in the works. And at the same time as the steel makers, we're also getting customers of steel joining and the mining suppliers to steel joining. So you get this incredibly valuable conversation between different players in the value chain so that they can see that they've got a line of sight to a sustainable value chain so that you can offer something really quite radically different. That can disrupt the industry, I think, that, that these new value chain partnerships that are developing, really getting ahead on, particularly on the decarbonization side, but with a very strong sustainable tail as well. One of the things that I think
1: is always important for people to understand about the steel industry is that there's a lot of different things that it does, but there are two sort of fundamental ways to make steel. There's the classic blast furnace, which takes iron ore and puts it with a bunch of other stuff and comes out with steel. And then there's this very rapidly growing electric arc furnace, EAF, portion of the industry where most of the input is scrap or it's recycled steel that was previously used for something else. That's becoming a very large percentage of the industry, especially in the United States, partly because electricity is cheaper in the United States than in some other countries. But I think you should talk a little bit about that because obviously... When electricity is used, it is intrinsically a more sustainable process from an emissions point of view, because the electricity source can be made green, at least over time, whereas there's only so much you can do with a blast furnace unless you get to hydrogen. But so I guess I'd just love you to talk about the technologies and the trajectory you see and how that is changing in a global context.
0: It is true today, we have these, these two dominant technology routes. But the blast furnace is used for, and and forgive me if I go into a little bit of technical detail, but I'm not. Rest assured, I'm not an engineer, so I'm not going to get into too
1: much. <laughs> it's okay.
0: So you reduce the iron ore from from what is mined into molten iron, which is then ready to be turned into steel. So that the the reduction process happens in the blast furnace. At the moment, that's traditionally the technology that's used, and then that can get turned into steel in a number of different different ways, the predominant technology being basic oxygen furnace. So you get this combination of blast furnace, basic oxygen furnace. And then as you rightly said, in where scrap is available, you can just melt the scrap in an electric arc furnace. So you're not making iron, you're just making steel from existing steel in, in that system. Now, what we're seeing in some parts of the world is a move towards the direct reduction iron furnace the DRI furnace. That would replace the blast furnace. That would enable all of the the energy to come from a gaseous source, such as hydrogen. And of course, that can be green hydrogen. And then the molten iron from the DRI furnace can also be charged into the electric arc furnace. So we're going to be moving from a twin root system to a system where actually you could have a DRI and an EAF on a, a steel plant in which you could then vary the amount of iron you put into the steel or scrap you put into the steel. And there is a site like this in, in Hamburg today in Europe, they're constantly varying the scrap levels, but they can also use iron, iron ore through the DRI furnace. So that that is potentially an increasingly popular sort of route that will be chosen, but actually for the blast furnaces that exist today, and this is what, 70% of global steel production today, that's one of the options, and it's a very expensive option, and steelmakers across the world are requesting for financial support from governments to be able to make those investments. There are steelmakers in many parts of the world where they don't see that forthcoming, that kind of funding. You know, we're talking about m- many hundreds of million dollars to buy this kind of kit. So what can they do to reduce their emissions? And they're looking at all sorts of other, other technologies which continue to use the blast furnace you can capture the, the carbon and store it with carbon capture and storage. You can capture the carbon, convert it into other materials such as plastics. You can introduce hydrogen also into the traditional BF, blast furnace, basic oxygen furnace route to a limited extent. So you you can do a number of things to reduce that and, and that will continue. And, and particularly in developing countries, we're still going to see the blast furnace in operation in 2050. So if I can lay over that, the fact that the availability of scrap is something which comes about because a building is pulled down, a car is scrapped. And so these things only happen you know, at the end of a, a product's life. So it takes a, a certain maturity in an economy to build up a stock of scrap. And actually, you'll find that overall as a globe, only 30% of today's steel is made from scrap. That's roughly what's available. There's 80, 90% of old end-of-life steel is recovered, right? But that only makes up 30% of of the global production. So that's going to increase slowly over time. And in some countries, like the US, you've got a much bigger supply of scraps, a much more mature economy. You've got 70% of steel that can be made from scrap. In Europe, it's about 50%. But in, Ch- in China, it's growing very rapidly, and by, by 2050, you, you might have 40%, 50% of scrap. But in places like India, you only got 20%. So the amount of iron ore or the amount of scrap that's gonna be available to make steel in the future is gonna be very variable depending on where you are in the world. So those technologies will adapt accordingly. And whilst, yes, the, the electric arc furnace can be a very clean way to make electricity, and it, it's the, the cleanest way if you're using renewable energy and using scrap, There's no doubt about it. That will be a wonderful world when we can create all of our steel from scrap made with renewable electricity. For many countries, we're not gonna get there yet. And so we have to take the opportunity of the investment in new blast furnaces and in the relining of old blast furnaces to ensure that they're on a road to decarbonisation. That's a very important part of the equation, as well as making the most we can out of the scrap that's available.
1: I know that you talk about net zero, even in the steel industry, which many people might be impressed by because it's it's such a hard area to get there, but that is the long-term goal, right? And do you have a date on that? And, and how how soon is it reasonably possible that we could be moving really actively toward a net zero steel industry, net zero emit greenhouse gas emissions?
0: So I think forecasts of what's reasonable depend very much on where you're standing, right? And how much you can see today and how much faith you have in the ability to change tomorrow. And 10 years ago, when I joined the steel industry, I would say most steel makers had a pretty pessimistic view of what was possible. They were very aware of exactly how much it costs to transform and to decarbonize. They're very aware of the limits on scrap. And so they, at the time, thought, you know, this is just not gonna happen this is high in the sky, it'll be 2070, 2090 before we can get to even parity with, with, uh, between scrap and iron ore. So, you know, it, we're just, it's just not going to be possible. And, and many steelmakers have done their designs for what, what, a, what the steel plant of the future could look like. They used to work together quite a lot on that. But only since the Paris Accords, since the increasing stakeholder pressure, have there been, there's been a lot more work. A lot more academic work, a lot more stakeholder work, a lot more partnership work by steelmakers, with technical experts to really look at how this could work, how much it would cost, and then to work with policymakers to bring into being the conditions that would make it possible and that's really the key to it. If the conditions are there and by that I mean the financial business case to make those investments, then it can it can happen. Not very quickly, not overnight, because these things do take time to build. You've got to design and and deliver and build these things, but it it can it can happen in the next 30 years.
1: To get to an all net zero steel industry with by say 2050, round around 2050.
0: What we know is that the scientists tell us that net zero by 2050 is what we need to achieve to avoid global warming of more than 1.5 degrees average temperature. So we've got to work back from there and say, what would it take? And what it would take is huge, huge levels of investment across the world. Now, if you're sitting in a developing country and you, you see that investment bill, you're really gonna wonder where that's gonna come from. And so you, you're likely to have a less optimistic outlook. So until I think developing countries can be sure that there are the mechanisms to deliver really the business case for investment in decarbonisation then those targets for 2050 are not going to be forthcoming. But what we know is that you know, many countries of the world now have made net zero by 2050 commitments. We've got India and China with 2060 and 2070. But as these new business models are developed, new funding models are developed, I think we will we'll be able to see feasibility and possibilities much more. There's so much work going on in that field at the moment I feel very positive about it. Really cool. Do we have the technologies we need though? And how close
1: are we? We have the tech we need. I mean, there's, you, you pretty much could see the pathway to all that with currently existing technologies?
0: Yes, indeed. indeed. When we, we, we I've talked about the DRI furnace, that's an old, old technology, but it's just relatively expensive to run because of the cost of natural gas, and we need the cost of green hydrogen to come down. So that's about economics. That's about possibilities. CCS, carbon capture and storage, the technology is there. The feasibility studies have been done in various countries across the world. But again, the funding's not there and the the, the policy to support it. There are a number of other technologies that are sort of a little bit further behind, but are already at a level where they're starting to demonstrate it in the field. For example, electrolysis, direct electrolysis. Uh, And that's a very promising technology. In fact, there are a number of technologies that come under that banner that by 2035, you might be seeing that technology become more feasible. So a bit early to make a judgment call on that. But with with hydrogen, DRI, and with carbon capture and storage, the technology is there.
1: That's very reassuring. You know, you talked earlier about the pressure that comes from all these different sources and how that's encouraging and sort of bringing the industry along with it. And one of the key areas is finance, obviously. There's an organization called Sustainable Steel that was actually created by a small group of banks. Talk a little bit about the significance of that. I believe you've had a lot of discussions with them. Is that a really good example of how these mutual sets of forces are all coming together and converging on a set of common goals?
0: Yes, it is. I think it's one of two interesting initiatives in this space. On the banking side, the Sustainable Steel Principles were launched last year, and they are aimed at bringing alignment on the way a bank measures the carbon in its portfolio. But not so much the the, the, the emissions that have already been, but the emissions trajectory going forward. So they are really assessing the steel companies in their portfolio for their intention to decarbonise. that then gives them a basis to engage with the steel companies and say, for example, look, if you're going to release a bond, we want you to attach decarbonisation targets to that bond. If you want us to extend our credit facility with you, we want you to attach carbon targets to that. And in fact, there are some of these credit facilities that attach responsible steel certification to them. Uh, I think there's about seven and a half billion dollars at the moment that, that is attached to responsible steel KPI. So that's kind of interesting too. And and it's a sign that the banking industry, there is a will there, and there is pragmatism that says, let's not all measure this differently. For the sake of the steel companies, let's measure this in a single way, and let's take into account the real world that's out there in the design of it. So the stainless steel principles have designed their methodology very, very carefully. They've um, they put a lot of work into that. They, they also did a consultation And they are very largely aligned with responsible steel's accounting rules for carbon. What that's going to then require is the steel companies to be ready to provide data in a consistent way. And so we've made an agreement with the Sustainable Steel Principles to work on that together to ensure that, you know, the steel companies are asked for the same set of data. And then you can cut it in different ways for different different stakeholders. The accounting rules for carbon make a huge difference to a carbon footprint. So if you're looking at one company's carbon footprint or one site, steel site's carbon footprint or a product's carbon footprint, you've got to look very carefully at the accounting rules because if they are different, then you can get real variations, 30% differences makes a big difference.
1: We need comparability, obviously, which is why standardization and standards make such a big difference. So the progress you've made is super impressive in that regard. One of the things I also find very impressive about the Responsible Steel Initiative is this commitment to transparency. And you are actually auditing companies now that you have the standards, as I understand it, to determine how they're doing. And talk a little bit about that and how you deal with that information and the degree to which it is public.
0: Right. So the transparency runs in our veins. It's been part of the actual design of the standard in the first place, and it's what we require of the sites that we audit. So the whole development of the Responsible Steel Standard, and I think this makes it very unique, has been out there on our website. Every webinar, that we've ever done is on our website. You've been able to track the, the evolution of the standard. And if you want to go back and say, well, why, why did this decision get made? You can go back and listen to the discussion that we had. So that, that, that's a part and parcel. And that, that's because we've committed to aligning with international standards on the development of, of such standards and schemes. And then when it comes to the site, so transparency is clearly a key lever improving one's sustainability performance. Because it, you know, what you report, you want to improve, right? So for every material impact that a steel site has, it's expected to disclose on its performance, just as any a company would be expected to do, whether it's on its financial impact or its sustainability impact these days. So that's built in, and then further to that, the site is subject to an, a, a three-stage audit in which an independent auditor that has been approved by Responsible Steel goes to the site and their site visit may last five, seven days. It's quite an intensive process. And they will go through and interview the manager of every owner of every principal in our standard. So, you know, the environment director, the human resources director, and so on. They will interview them and they will ask to see evidence of how they're complying with the standard. And that might be minutes of of management meetings, it might be minutes of stakeholder engagement meetings, where the site's been engaging with with its workers, for example. So there's there's transparency built in all the way across the standard. And then when the site is certified, a summary of its report is put online. And what we anticipate with the first certifications against our new requirements is that the data from that audit which has to be disclosed as part of the audit so your for example your embodied co2 in your in your steel certain information about your suppliers that information will be also posted online so you will be able to see that this site in the us or that site in india has a embodied co2 intensity of this many tons of co2 per ton of steel i hope it will be not so many tons, then that will create in itself a a very interesting database, the first such database of comparable carbon data across steel sites across the world, because there are no two steel sites that are alike. And what we've created is a way of measuring carbon that enables, as you say, comparability every site in the world.
1: Okay, I have a question for you. If you have, currently have, I think you said, fourteen percent of the global steel industry are members, is the eighty-six percent staying away because they don't want to be subject to that?
0: Well, fifty percent, as I say, is in is in China, and we are. It's a, it's a slow progress to to work in China. We're a young organization, but we're working on that. The rest of the world, as I say, this this the steel steel companies' interest is growing, and as you said earlier, what one one company does can often then influence what another company does. And I think when other steel companies understand that this this is becoming the de facto standard for the industry and their stakeholders start asking for it, then they're going to want to join too. And what we're seeing now is responsible steel being endorsed and recognised by other systems. So for example, the Australian Green Building Council has just um, recognised responsible steel. So if you're building, a, uh, if you're designing a building in Australia, the steel that you use in that building, you're going to get an extra credit if it's responsible steel certified. So there's a kind of lever in the market for that.
1: Yeah. Obviously, investors too. Investors, if they start having standards like the Sustainable Steel Initiative among banks, you know, it will become a stock performance virtue to have comparable data that you can brag about. Otherwise, you're going to fall behind
0: in even financially. And it shows that you've got very good risk management if you are managing ESG well, and that's what the responsible steel certification gives you. That's true in the stock market as, well, as much as in, in, in the bond marking market or the lending market. A very big asset manager said to me the other day, shouldn't every steel stock be responsible steel certified? Isn't that the best way for us to manage risk? Right. Need I say more? You know, one of the other forces that's changing to
1: increase the pressure is the way governments are acting and really waking up, in a sense, to the climate crisis. And most notably, the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States is a dramatic shift in the environment. And with that $370 billion that's targeted for climate-friendly climate friendly infrastructure and investing, that's clearly going to drive demand for a lot of more sustainable, responsible steel. How do you think about the movement and the direction of how governments are thinking about this challenge?
0: So the Inflation Reduction Act, there's no doubt about it that it is, I think it will be seen in the history books as a a catalyst. It it has created so much conversation that it has precipitated a lot faster action by other governments where they were perhaps previously dragging their heels. You know, we've seen Europe respond pretty rapidly and rapidly is not a word that we often use in when we're thinking about the European Commission. No, it is. Well, with any government really, but anyway, yeah. So, it's something which I I know Aditya Mittal uh, a few years ago talked about and he called it carbon diplomacy. You know, if one, if one government starts acting, then they, they start to have a better engagement with other governments on their action. In the same direction. So I think that's how it'll, how it'll be seen in the long term. Right now, there's you know it's creating a lot of tension, obviously, because there's a lot of competition for the finance globally. And there's no doubt about it that the Inflation Reduction Act has attracted a lot of that to the US. But I think over time, it, in the longer term, we'll, we'll see it as a catalyst for change. That had to happen, you know, because I think the role of policy is to make the impossible possible. And that's what that, that act does. Is it interesting
1: or unusual the way that your organization is structured so that you have NGOs and unions and steel makers and steel customers all in the same room often? And I think you've called it a safe space that you've created in a way for a, a kind of honest dialogue that may not have been present in the industry as much before. How significant is that? And do you see that happening in other industries? Is this an influence that maybe others are watching?
0: Yes, it's a model that we've certainly learnt by looking at other industries. The most famous example is the Forest Stewardship Council, the FSC, that also has this multi-stakeholder model. You see it in the Marine Stewardship Council and, and many others beside. Aluminium's doing the same. Cement is looking at it. So it's established as, as the, the most credible sort of model to use. But yes, it is new to the steel industry. And I think there's a lot of nervousness about it. Uh, And I think only by engaging actually, do you realize that you can have very, very practical constructive conversations because there's an awful lot of increased understanding that happens as a result in both directions. So you get, you you know, you get NGOs learning from steelmakers about some of the technicalities and understanding pragmatically what's possible. You know, you can't push for something unless it's possible. And so you think, well, how can you make it possible? then you end up having NGOs and steel makers working together to find solutions. And that's really, really very, very constructive.
1: Well, Annie, thank you so much for joining us. It's really been a fascinating conversation.
0: David, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.
1: Responsible Steel is really an impressive organization. You're doing some incredibly interesting and productive things. I hope you succeed and get to that net zero goal as soon as possible. Well, that concludes this episode of Steel Stories. I hope you'll join us next time because we've got a bunch of great additional episodes coming soon. Steel Stories is brought to you by US Steel. To find out more about our sustainable steel solutions and how our best for all strategy allows us to re-envision the future alongside our customers, visit www.ussteel.com. Search for U.S. Steel in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. And make sure to hit subscribe so you never miss a future episode. On behalf of the team here at U.S. Steel, thanks for listening.